Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. <laughs> so nice to see you. I've missed you. Oh, darling, I've missed you too. This is, I'm so, so I've so missed this. So well, you know, we've only been apart for like two weeks, <laughs> right? Is that all it's been? I know, it feels like ages. It's been longer. I feel like I've released podcast after podcast after podcast without you. Let's just see where we get to. Let's get into it. Right. Have you done the research? Because, fuck, I haven't done, done anything. I've done all the research. Pretty amazing, actually, the research mm. is. So, B, we're up to episode 17 on the Great Birth Rebellion. Let's never be apart again. <laughs> My husband did say to me, is she coming back now? Maybe, are you sure she's enjoying herself? I'm like, she's coming back. Stop it. It was just so hectic. So I think, um, yes, I'm here. I'm not going to leave you forever. I just had a little holiday. That's right. We're back. We coped. We managed. Were we okay? We hit 40,000. We know. While you were gone, 40,000 downloads. Mm. I think what we've learned from being away from each other is that this works and we want to be together. We want to be together. You know what I've also realised? I feel like you bring out the best in me. When I was interviewing, <laughs> I know, when I was interviewing on my own, I just thought, why am I not more entertaining right now? Maybe I need B and B needs me. We need each other. I love it. <laughs> I totally need you because I can't I can't be, I can't, look out you, I'm so good. I don't swear. I stop myself all the time, but I can't be bothered doing all of what you do around this. So yeah, we need each other. It's a good relationship. Yeah, it works. Let's get cool. into it. Let's do it. We're doing water birth this week and we weren't going to do water birth. but oh, many questions. I know. So in the one week, I got emails from two separate midwives on different parts of, in different parts of Australia saying our hospital's being challenged with water birth and they're saying we can't do it and all the midwives are petitioning for it. Can you give me some research that I can go in with, armed with, into these meetings? And this is a big one. Lots of women are asking for it too. And what I hear in birth debriefs over and over again is I wanted to use the water and I couldn't. And what I'm hearing more than anything is not not only water birth is being discouraged and oh no you can't do it and rules around it but so is laboring in the water but that's what happens people are told you can't have it and so we have all this evidence around laboring in water and birthing in water and we're going to talk about it today that says it's epic and it's amazing and women love it and it has great benefits for our birth and our babies but it's being banned or being stopped, or excuses are made around it. All these excuses, mostly around fetal monitoring, which is hilarious when you think about yeah. that CGGs were brought in without any evidence, and they're the things that are stopping us. Correct. And we're going to talk all about the evidence. And there's, and I've got, I've got some strong feelings to be about this. Well, tell me, right. where's the research at? Where's the research at? All right. Where's the research at? I don't know, B. I'm What's not... your plan? Mm-hmm. What's the plan for today's okay. chat? Plan for today's chat. So we're talking about water birth, and I do consider myself somewhat of an expert because the majority of my clients either choose to labour in water or give birth in water. And so I've been attending the majority of births at home in water for 14 years. So there's not many midwives who are working in a setting that is firstly not hostile towards water birth, but that has such a high rate of women wanting to enter the water. There's a few reasons for that. And one of them is continuous CTG monitoring is that a lot of those systems don't allow women to get, they can't be immersed in water. They're not waterproof. And the second reason is the massive change in the number of women who are being classified as high risk. So Mm. way when I started midwifery, There wasn't like everybody now is high risk. They're in a risk category for something. So what's happening now is we're further medicalizing pregnancy and birth by trying to fit absolutely every pregnant woman into a risk category. The issue is that even hospitals who have water birth policies will only allow women who are low risk to enter the water. So here we have a problem where only low-risk women can enter the water. However, the medicalization of birth is continuing and so 
we're gradually classifying every little thing in pregnancy as a risk factor and therefore more women are being classified as high risk. So it's a pretty unicorn situation to walk into a hospital that is not hostile towards water birth, then to have access to a midwife who's comfortable with water birth and a hospital who's got the right facilities for water birth and you have to be low risk. And the room has to be available. You know, I remember when I was at a big hospital in Melbourne and they were building a new birth suite and we were like, oh, how many baths are there going to be? And Because they, they're like, there's going to be 20 new rooms and only four rooms were going to have baths in them. And also, so I've been, there's two hospitals that I've transferred into this year both of which were new units and who obviously had been very thoughtful in their unit design. One of them had these amazing baths in every single room. They were huge. You needed a staircase to get in and out of them. Then I went to another hospital and this is a fun story. They also had a new unit. They also had baths, but they neglected to install stairs to get into the bath. So once the new unit was built, and everything is getting ticked off, you know, the list of like, yes, that's safe to use, that's safe to use. Baths are not safe to use because you can't get into the baths because there's no stairs. And apparently the midwives had said to the design team or whoever it was, um, how are they going to get in? And nobody put steps. So the solution was is they bought this one little step stool you know, an Ikea step stool or something, they've got the one. So you can use that stool to get in and out, but there's only the one stool. So you have to go find it if the woman wants to get in and out of the bath or if you need to get the woman out of the bath for some reason. So they have these baths. They weren't able to use them yet. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, That's how how disappointing that is. That does not surprise me at all. I mean, what I thought you would have said was that the stool wasn't safe and so no one can use the bath. They just get to look at it because I've worked in places like that. Because this is the legitimate fear that surrounds water birth, the biggest fear that hospitals have, right? Because we have to think about how systems work and a big part of the hospital system is insurance and they need to tick all the boxes, you know, all the form fillers come in. If anyone's seen Hunt for the Wilder People, they'll know what I'm talking about with the form filler person. But they come around, they have to tick all the boxes and it's, you know, a legit fear that what happens if somebody, if the person birthing in or labouring in the bath has a postpartum hemorrhage? Well, I wasn't thinking postpartum hemorrhage, like a like a fit. That's like like they become unconscious. Thank lose you. Consci- if they yes. lose, lose consciousness. consciousness, that is what people are worried about. So if the person laboring the bath loses consciousness, how are we going to get them out? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so how many yeah. people, how many women have you looked after in labor who have lost consciousness? Absolutely zero. Me too. Zero. None. Never. Mm. Never. Good. Never happened, but that is our, that is the fear of the OCH health and safety people, right? Okay. And so when you work in these places with baths, they have these massive sling things that are installed, and we do training in hospital training of how to get people out of the bath. You have to do, we get people, like we have to practice, and someone gets in and pretends that they've lost consciousness. But I've never care for someone who has lost consciousness the system doesn't like that because if I do my back in getting you out of the bath during your labor then they then have to pay me for the rest of my career to not work so this is a money issue it's a money and which is often with birth it's a legality and a money issue but this is often what it comes down to is can we get you out of the bath that is legitimately the conversations that happen around water birth this is why you can't and I'm doing speech marks here they are again next episode of why you can't get in the bath that is often the underlying fear so midwives listening to this I want you to do a mental tally of how many women have actually suddenly lost consciousness after giving birth in your care and then you'll understand the level of risk that we're dealing about of dealing with of women actually losing consciousness in a body of water because if you lose consciousness losing we need to clear this up if you lose consciousness through blood loss it's not like everything's fine and then you're out 
you're losing blood and we're seeing that or we're seeing other vital signs and so we get you out of the bath. Mm-hmm. Losing, I mean, you're close to death if you've lost consciousness from blood loss, really. Yeah. Like it's yeah. very hard to get there. Yeah. Just Okay, good. We've gone off topic, but I feel like we needed to say that. It is in relation to You need to, to say that. that. And people, midwives and doctors will have cared for people that have lost consciousness. Yes, that's right. So, yes, I'm coming at this as feeling like quite the expert. So I feel like I've got some authority in this space. So listen up. I'm an expert in terms of clinical midwifery care because a lot of the people I've cared for have birthed in the water. Mm. Yeah, me too. All right. And let's go expert A and B. All right. So the first question I get from clients, well, some of the questions I get from clients is just about the mechanism of water birth. So what happens when the baby's head comes out, why isn't the baby drowning, right? Like if the baby yeah. comes out in the water, why isn't it actually drowning? So here's what I want to tell you about that. So the baby's attached to the mum by the placenta and the cord, and that's where the baby's getting all its oxygen, nutrients, and everything it needs from its mama. The lungs actually only have enough blood supply to keep the tissue alive. And although the baby does do breathing movements in utero to get their diaphragm and their chest and everything ready to breathe when it's born, they're not breathing air in utero. Their lungs are full of fluid. They're already full of fluid. So in all intents and purposes, they're drowned from the get-go of their development. (laughs) Bee's laughing at me. I'm just saying their lungs are full of fluid. They're not using them for oxygen transfer yet. Okay. They're not drowned, though. They are perfectly made and living how they're meant to. They're living. They're exactly. not drowned. Drowned means you're dead, in my I, opinion. Their lungs are just filled with fluid, and that is normal for them in utero. And they're not using them for oxygen transfer. So that's what I'm trying to say. So then, actually, their whole circulation their blood circulation is different when they're in utero than when they come out so when they come out they're still using their fetal in utero circulation until they take a breath at which time all these trap doors close in the baby's body and they completely reroute their entire blood circulation around their body and it's almost instantaneous we give them about one minute to transition from being umbilical cord breathers to oxygen breathers with their lungs it it's it doesn't take long that process partially relies on being squished out of a vagina and secondly relies on the inhalation of air into the lungs to allow for full expansion to then close off all the vessels and start doing oxygen transfer through the lungs. And babies are super clever. They won't stop taking blood from their placenta and from their mum and nourishment and oxygen until their lungs are fully transitioned to breathing air and they their body knows that they can get enough air from their lungs. Which is why the cords keeps pulsating because it's continuing to deliver oxygen. And so the way I kind of explain it is babies being born in water, um, from water into water. So the environment doesn't change at all. It's just an it's an extension of the womb, the a water birth. And that's why we ensure that it's around the same temperature as a person's body. But the what I kind of explain with the breathing is that we breathe once that air is available to us. So when the air touches the skin and we get that, okay, right, now we can breathe because the air is available. And so the first thing it touches is actually our skin. And so the body recognizes there's air there and then it moves into our mouth and then we inhale it and so that doesn't happen when there's water because they're still just surrounded by the same it's an extension of the womb a womb extender a womb extender and Mm. babies have what's called a dive reflex so they yeah like you said their skin can detect air and Mm -hmm. if there's not air then they won't try and breathe because they know they're in water. They instinctively know they're in water. Their body knows. And so it's only until a baby surfaces do they even attempt to take a breath, usually. So when the baby's head is born underwater, the very, very worst thing you can do for that baby is to suddenly change the environment by doing things like pulling the plug in a bath. So I've seen and heard of places who... Do not offer water birth. You can get into the pool to labor, but 
if the baby starts being born, they pull the plug. So all of a sudden, you, you've created the most dangerous situation you possibly could in a water birth scenario by having part of the baby born in water and part of the baby born in air. Because if the baby, so if the head comes out, sometimes women get a little bit of a shock when the baby's head comes out. And it's really important if you're laboring and birthing in water that the whole baby needs to be born into the water. Because if the baby's head is born and then you suddenly shoot up out of the water out of surprise or shock and the baby discovers air, it may actually start to try and make that transition. But the worst thing you could do is pull the plug. So you want either the baby to be born completely in water or completely on land to try and ease that transition. Top tip, do not pull the plug if the head's already born. It's the worst possible thing you can do in that scenario. What I normally say, because sometimes women will stand up to birth the rest of the baby. And so the worst thing that we want is to be to sit back down in the bath. So we don't want the baby to go from water into air back into water. I think the other dangerous thing about pulling a plug is when you think about what hormones are in play here. So you've got a head out of um, the pelvic bowl, but you've still got the baby inside it. And so this is the crucial moments, not just for the birth of the baby, but also the birth of the placenta. Right. And this is something that's forgot, regardless of whether people are birthing in water or on land. They're the most crucial moments to keep safe um, because the oxytocin diminishes, the adrenaline comes in, the woman no longer feels safe and her contractions may fizzle, right? And most important thing here is to keep that oxytocin rich and flowing. And to, to enable that, you need the person birthing to feel safe. And so if you pull the plug and she doesn't expect it or they don't expect it or um, it's not what they want, then they can go into that rational brain have that adrenaline, decrease the oxytocin, decrease the contraction. And then all of a sudden, rather than the baby being born straight away, you're now waiting for the next contraction, right? And so that baby is getting, is is squished for a longer time than was physiologically necessary. The flow-on effect for that is difficulties. It can be difficulties with the contractions that birth the placenta and bleeding. So when you pull a bath, you disrupt the whole environment, not just physically in terms of whether it's water there or not, but chemically in terms of hormones. And I think if a woman has a plan to have a water birth, if you're like thinking, all I want to do is have a water birth, a realistic expectation is, is that probably is not going to happen in a hospital here in Australia. You'd have to talk to your hospital, see what their rates are and and find out their risk factors. I think this is this is part of birth mapping and then know the policy. Well, what's your policy of your hospital? With the current risk factor that I'm classified as, what will that mean for me? Mm. And these are the conversations you need to have with your care providers well before you're in labor because you don't want to find out. You want to go in and go, yeah, I really want a water birth. And then you find out, oh, you're risked out. You know, I, I, what you've just said, there is a lot of truth to that, that, you know, if you want one, your chances are getting more and more slim, which is not okay. And that's why we're here to talk about this today so that people, especially care providers, have the evidence, but also you have the evidence to take to your care providers and start to challenge it. Yeah. And you can ask them, what's your water birth policy? And they can print you off the word for word policy that the staff goes by because that's how care is delivered in a hospital is usually according to policy so if your hospital says we don't have a water birth policy or sometimes the policy dictates that the only the midwives who have been through water birth training are allowed to attend water birth so if you show up on the day in labor and none of the midwives on the ward that day are qualified to do water births according to their facility then even if they have pools, even if you are low risk, you still can't access the water. And the other thing we need to talk about here is monitoring, right? So CTG monitoring, if you have accepted CTG monitoring in your labour, what that can mean, so CTGs can look very different. They can have monitors, they can have 
so there's two parts of them. One measures the uterine contraction, one measures the baby's heart rate, and there's cords. So some of them have cords, some of them don't. The ones that don't, we call them te- telemetry or wireless. Most of them these days are telemetry. I worked in a hospital where they didn't know that they were waterproof. And so they were like, we don't have the right machines for them. And I was like, no, they're waterproof machines. They're fine. And then we checked the manual and it was like for three years, they hadn't been offering water immersion and they could have, but they didn't understand the machines. I hadn't read the instructions, but some machines do and are not allowed to go in the water. They're not waterproof. There you go. That's the right word. Thanks, B. So there are waterproof machines and there are non-waterproof machines. And whether you get a waterproof machine or not is sometimes whether the machine is charged, whether it's available. And I hear this all the time in birthday briefs. Oh, I turned up and there was a machine in my room that was waterproof, but it wasn't charged or it wasn't working. And this happens a lot because these machines are a pain in the anus. They are really tricky because sometimes they charge, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And our problem to solve it is to turn it on and off and then switch it around and move it to the next room and see if it works then. And it's we're not IT specialists, us midwives, and so they can be really tricky to work. And so that can be a real hindrance if you've accepted CTG monitoring. And the other thing that I have have told women in the past when they say, well, am I allowed to get in the water? I say to them, actually, when you arrive in the room, if there's a bath, assume that you own that room and assume that you own that space and don't ask for permission. Just take your clothes off, turn on the bath and get in. Don't ask, can I get into the bath? Because just that's your space and that's your labor. And if you feel like you want to get in the bath, you really should. And you don't have to get your care provider's permission for that. B, you know, you're talking a lot about all the evidence around water birth. So I've gone ahead and had a look into it and it's actually not that much. But fortunately, we do have a Cochrane review, which was done in... I was going to say, there's a Cochrane review on it. I know there's a Cochrane review. Well, I had a look at it though. So here we go. We'll do. We'll look into some of the research. Cochrane, oh, can we start? Because this is something I know. Can we start from um, the beginning? So the first water birth, I feel like I need to go and look it up now. Do you know about this? No, go ahead. First recorded account of a water birth in the modern Western world was in a village in France in 1803. It it was interesting, right? When I worked in the Solomon Islands, I was really passionate because I'd heard lots of stories around women in different areas. So Maori women in Central America, ancient Greeks, Egyptians. I've heard, I'd heard stories around women birthing in water. And so when I went to the Solomons, I was really intrigued about it because obviously it's like there's 990 islands in the Solomon Islands and so many of them are tiny and they weed and pooed in the ocean where I lived in a tiny village. They would go out where the current was to to go to the toilet every morning and poo. And so the water was very much a part of their life. And so I was really interested to know. And I'd heard also, and there's a DVD, DVD, I'm so old, but it is a DVD, (laughs) video where a woman is birthing in, I feel like it was Russia. I remember watching it in in uni. Birth into being, it's called, is the the video. Is it in Russia? Russia, they go to the Black Sea and they have a birthing camp. Okay, and the dolphins come up. Dolphins come up and the DVD, the video is called Birth Into Being and I I have it on DVD as well. But oh, I'm coming around it. and we're going to watch it. So Birth Into Be? Birth Into Being. So um, it's been around. So in the, the shallow, warm waters of the South Pacific Islands, there's lots of stories around it being around. But the first ever account of the use of water in Europe was, you know, it depends on what you read, 1803 to 1805. And it was that a French woman had labored for two days before being encouraged into a warm bath by her doctor. And then she progressed to give birth to a healthy baby within the next hour is the kind of story around it. And so then then water birth was first kind of pioneered that's documented that it's been pioneered in the 1960s by the Russian researcher and I'm going to get his name wrong but mm-hmm. Igor Travereski yes. <laughs> I just say it fast no one will notice he so he was using in the DVD 
Ah, of course. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. So using a large aquarium, he installed a glass tank in his home in Moscow in which mothers gave birth. And so that was kind of where water birth was first inspired. For today's generation of birthing people, the most um, key figure of the use of water is Michel Odont, who is a French obstetrician. And in 1977, he installed a pool in the hospital and not with the idea of promoting birth in water, but primarily as an additional option for pain relief. So his whole thing was coming at it from supporting oxytocin and people feeling comfortable. So it wasn't, it was about rest and pain relief for long and difficult labors because he'd heard of how it had worked. It wasn't about, he, he wasn't even thinking about the benefits of birthing in water. And so he's, he has said the reason for the birthing pool is not to have the baby born in water, but to facilitate the birth process and to reduce the need for drugs and other interventions. And so he his data was published in The Lancet, which is seen as an incredible journal and so you know people were starting to get really inspired by what was happening in moscow and france and so the earliest word of births that took place in the west were births at home and people were you know starting to improvise with with bathtubs and what they have and i mean now we have like blow-up pools that we use then medical establishments started to condemn or at least start to question the practice of water birth um, by thinking about risks of infection and the biggest one, which is still really, as Mel has said, is very much um, dominant still in our culture and our way of thinking is the fear of the baby drown- drowning. And there was an incredible neonatal physiologist at an, a hospital in Oxford. Uh, his name was Dr. Paul Johnson. And his research was all around the mechanisms that trigger the breathing in the newborn and showing that it wasn't a risk. Um, and you, that was the dive reflex that you've talked about as well. Then there were more studies done that kind of, you know, and you're going to go into this is that what you've got Mel to go into I've got I've got a snippet of yes I do yes short answer I've got research papers anyway right so what research have you got because there is a I know there's not a lot but there is a Cochrane review on it oh my gosh hey I while you were talking I just zoned out and went ahead and googled birth into being Hmm. I didn't zone out I was listening I was doing two things at once you were multitasking like a badass woman you can buy birth into being on their website birthintobeing.com i would recommend still a, is it still a dvd oh let me take can, you, down, can you, stri- can you can you can you downstream it downstream it that's a new word okay i'm looking at it now okay here we got it's 17 dollars. i'm clicking the button to pretend like i was buying it file format it's an mp4 format video file Oh, we need to watch this. We're going to watch Birth into Being. So watch it. Everyone now has to watch it. And then we should do a um, critique of it. We should watch it and do a podcast at the same time. Commentate. We've got to film us commentating Birth into Being. Yes. Okay, that's going to happen. It'll be a YouTube video. Watch this space. Get on the mailing list if you want any information about that. Uh, Christmas spectacular. Okay. Okay. Right. So let's get back to the research. Now we've got the history. Let's look at the current research around water birth. Okay. Current research. So I've put the research into two camps, women's experiences, and then also the camp of outcomes. So if I want, I'm going to very briefly talk you through the current research on women's experiences of water birth. So long story short, women want to be in water. That's why this is important. So anything that restricts women's choice is an issue and that's what we're rebelling against is a restriction of women's choice. So what we know when we interview women about water birth is that they loved it, they had high levels of satisfaction, they felt safer in the water, they want it and it gave them a sense of feeling relaxed and having privacy and like women describe it as their own little micro home where nobody can come near them. You can't have a vaginal exam if you're in the water. No one can cut you. No one can do anything to you that you don't want done. So it feels like a safe little micro zone for women. So full stop, women want it. Therefore, we need to work out a way to provide it. The next thing that we all think about is, but is it safe? So we've got research And so the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, which we've spoken about before, is a very, very high level of evidence when it comes to... We love it. Cochrane, 2018. So fairly recent, four years ago, 
they did a systematic review of the current evidence. The problem is, is that they only found 15 trials. Well, that's not the problem. 15 is pretty good, except in all of those trials, there was only a total of 3,663 women. So what they concluded is, although there was 15 studies, there wasn't a really high volume of women. So it's hard to make very strong conclusions about the safety of water of water birth or the dangers of having had a water birth but they said there's basically no evidence of increased adverse effects to the baby or the woman but the available evidence is limited and it wasn't of great quality the, and the other thing to remember is up until 2018 Cochrane could not find any studies of women giving birth in water in a midwifery-led unit and so all of the studies were conducted in tertiary centres where there was obstetric oversight over birth and they weren't in midwifery-led models, all the research. So what there was a gap, I think, up until 2018 in the research about the safety and and or dangers of giving birth in water because we haven't, we didn't really properly test it until now. So then Q now in 2022, there was a massive study done. It was called Maternal and Neonatal Outcomes Following Water Birth. It's the newest, the biggest, the bestest, and it makes up for all of the shortfalls of what happened in the Cochrane Review. And you're hearing it right now. This is the best place to be. Oh, it's, so it's 2022. It was, it came out. My, my vulva is so hard right now. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> all right, here we go. Harden up. Give it body. to me. Give it to me. I'm going to mute myself just this is so it can be powerful from you. Ready? Go. Go. All right. So 2022, we investigated the outcomes for women and babies. Now, the pro- again, the problem is, is this research is done on low-risk women. So there's a massive gap in research for higher women who are considered to have higher like any risk factors. You and promised women- me that it was covering all the shortfalls. Mm, sorry. It I've didn't. Let you, I've let you down. Yeah. My my vulva is no longer hard, but keep going. Wait, wait for it. What, who does this research apply to? How do they do it in the first place? Like, I'll tell you, know, you how they did it. I'll right. Okay. I'm listening. I'm just annoyed. I know. So what's happened is because it was done in the US, they've solved the problem of the number issue. So this study had 17,530 women have water births, but even better, they were all births that were attended in the community by midwives, so either at home or in community birth centres. There's an organisation in America called the Midwives Alliance of North America, and they have a statistics project. It's called Manastats, M-A-N-A Stats, and there's research done on the quality of this data set and that there's paper, papers written about this particular data set, this Midwives Alliance data set. So it's a reliable set of data. Basically, it's a data collection system. And if you're worried about the quality of that, they have papers on that. And one day. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. The data was from 2012 to 2018. So they had 17,530 water births and they compared them to 17,530 land births. And they matched the groups. So even though it was what we call retrospective in a sense that they didn't recruit that many women and then see what happened, they actually looked back on the data sets that had already been collected. So they could match the groups. So they had roughly, well, as as best as they could, equal type of groups to compare. So, yeah, so we've got low risk, attended by midwives at home or in a birth centre. And what they were looking at was, so for the maternal outcomes, for the women's outcomes, did they have a postpartum hemorrhage of greater than 1,000 mils? Separately, was the woman diagnosed to have had a PPH even if she didn't lose 1,000 mils? They looked at perineal or genital trauma. They had a look at if the woman had to transfer to hospital within six hours after the birth. And then they had a look at if the woman had to be hospitalized up to six weeks after the birth. So that was for the women. And then for the babies, they looked at something which is called cord avulsion, which is basically just the cord snaps. Um, which most doctors I've ever been in an appointment with will quote that. Like I've been in a, where they're like, no, you can't have water births because this is what happens. So let's look at this stat importantly. We'll look at this stat. So cord avulsion, 
respiratory distress as a result of being born in water, a neonatal transfer to hospital within six hours, or if they had to be admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit. Then they also had a look at if the baby needed to be hospitalised for anything or infection up to six weeks after the birth. And they also looked at deaths for babies. So no women died, which we would expect in such a, in a small data set like that. So if we have a look at the results, now I'm just going to break these up into statistically significant or not. And the one thing that other than cord avulsion, the other thing that people worry about is they say that women who have their babies in water have a higher risk of third or fourth degree tears or, or trauma to their perineum or genital tract. And the other one that people worry about is bleeding. So let's answer those questions. Should we just talk about what cord avulsion is just quickly? So what they're scared of is that the baby will be born and then as it's born, it'll be born with so much force or it'll swim away from the mum and the cord will snap. So cord avulsion is where the cord actually snaps and so then the blood supply to the baby is not only cut off but now also have um, has the potential to drain out through the snapped cord that's not not clamped at all. I mean, what do they think happens in a water birth? I think what they're thinking is that the baby is like, you know, has to go 10 metres away from its mother, like whereas in a land birth, your hands Um, are right there. The other thing to think about too is because we can't see the cord, what I have seen, and actually we're going to talk about cord avulsion, you'll be surprised. Um, Am I going to be disappointed? No, just surprised. Okay. Just surprised. Because what may happen is, you know, if you've got a short cord, for example, and you're on land, you can see that and you would do something different than you would if you couldn't quite see it in the water. So we'll get there. Hold on to these cord avulsion thoughts. Mm-hmm. I have big feelings about the cord avulsion because I used to work with one doctor who would say it to every single woman and then, like, we'd have to have all these big talks about it. So hmm, let's go into it see where we get. All right. So if we look at maternal outcomes from this big 2022 study of women cared for by midwives at home or in a birth centre, postpartum hemorrhage of greater than a thousand mils if you had a water birth the stats were 2.38 percent if you were birthing on land is 2.99 so less chance of postpartum hemorrhage of greater than a thousand mils if you're in water okay diagnosis next we'll look at genital genital tract trauma so any genital genital tract trauma first degree second degree labial tears grazes anything if you're in water it's 49.3 if you're on land, 49.2. So that is considered not statistically significant. Basically, all the same. Any genital tract trauma, no increase, no change. If we have a look at third and fourth degree tears, and this is something that came up when people were emailing me asking for research, that their obstetricians were worried about third and fourth degree tears. In water, 0.75%. On land, 0.84%. So that's considered statistically significant, but you're at more risk of a third or fourth degree tear if you give birth on land. You're at less risk of that if you give birth in water. Maternal hospitalization in the first six weeks is 1.9% if you gave birth in water, 2.2% if you gave birth on land. So that was also considered statistically significant. So if you give birth on land, there's a statistically significant, more likely chance that you'll need to be admitted to hospital in the first six weeks after your birth. But again, we're talking 2.2% versus 1.9. The other thing that people worry about is maternal uterine infection as a result of having given birth in water. Now, this was also a statistically significant difference, but not in favor of water birth. So maternal uterine infection in the first six weeks, 0.31% of women who gave birth in water were diagnosed with a uterine infection versus 0.25% if you gave birth on land. So 0.31% versus 0.25%. So tiny, tiny increase for maternal infections. But the interesting thing with this intrauterine, this uterine infection, although there was a very slight increase in the water birth ones, In terms of the women who had to be hospitalised for a uterine infection, they were the same percentage. So even though some women were diagnosed with a uterine infection after a birth and after a land birth, 
only half of them actually needed to go to hospital. So the hospitalization rate for infection was was the same for any women giving birth in water or land. That sort of tells us that it wasn't that serious that they had to be hospitalized for treatment. So so now if we look at babies, umbilical cord avulsion B, so snapped cords in the water birth group, there was 0.57% cord avulsion, so half a percent. In the land birth, it was 0.37%. So yeah, increased in water births. And if I'm honest, I've seen two cord avulsions at home in the water and I haven't seen any on land yet, but everyone was fine. And these are the percentages. So 0.57% and 0.37%. Now hold. Statistically significant. Statistically significant. Yeah. So talk us through what you did because I've never seen one. I've never had one. Um, So talk us through what happened so people can actually get information about it and know, well, what goes on? One of them was, I'm sure, just the cord was super short and then as the woman was bringing the baby up to her chest, the cord snapped. And then the second one, although I saw it, I have a feeling the dad was uber excited. The baby came out, he picked it up out of the pool and just, again, pulled a bit too hard, cord snapped. So both times you've seen it, the baby's kind of been closer to mum. And so what have you done? You just clamped the cord. As soon as I saw yeah, it, so I you went, just grab it. Cord snap. you clamped it. Yeah. And the women and are- both babies were fine. Both babies were fine. It's It's not... I don't think it's an emergency if you manage it quickly, but yeah. obviously it's it's like doing immediate cord clamping in a sense because the baby yeah. hasn't finished using its cord yet. So it's unfortunate, but I wouldn't have considered it an emergency. I just went, oh, look at that, cord's broken, clamp that guy off. I, I am surprised, but I understand it. Mm, I think that must be something to do with less visualisation of what's going on and mm. then... Because it's in water, you can more easily move the baby around in a way because there's no weight. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And so, again, this is what it's all about. Are you comfortable with that risk? Are you comfortable with the risk jumping from 0.3 to 0.5? And I would assume here, and I can't speak for anyone, but assume that most people would be comfortable with a 0.2 increase of that and knowing how it's managed. Well, and the other thing is that, if you know that the that one of the increased risks of water birth is that there can be cord avulsion, and I'm assuming it's mostly to do with somebody else catching the baby and moving it away from the mum and up and around, then you know that to just use caution around moving a baby away from its mother after it's born in a water birth because there's a slight increased risk of cord avulsion. So I think we can use this information to dictate what we might do differently in a water birth than we would maybe on as as opposed to ban water birth or not allow it yeah because what were the neonatal did you talk about those neonatal death threat oh hello my children have just arrived this is b sometimes i have sleeping flowers they're sweepies they're oh they smell amazing smell that they're pretty strong oh they are strong wow thank you I'll be out soon. You can play them because it's sweet. Thanks. Bye. Can you close the door? Love you. Did you talk about the death rates? No. Not yet. Haven't yet. Okay, yeah. Talked about okay. cord avulsion. Yeah. Okay. So with that risk, what then is the neonatal um, mortality rate? So the death rates around water birth. Okay. So here's what's interesting, and we will have the discussion about this too. So neonatal death rate, if you've given birth in water, 0.28 babies per thousand. 2.8 per 10,000. Per 10,000. Okay. And if you give birth on land, it's 0.51. So half a baby per thousand. So five babies per 10,000. Correct. So, so it's more on land. It's more on land. Even so, though cord avulsion was higher. So yes, I'm giving my fingers up at, at the doctor that used to say it right now, just energizing that and just well, fingering. Give me a the doc- <laughs> just fingering that doctor. The thing- <laughs> That's what you said. I know. I didn't mean it like that. Right. Um, so although you, the doctor was right, there is an increased risk of cord avulsion, but what happened? it doesn't 
increase the risk to the baby of dying. In fact, there's still more, more risk of dying out of the water than they were in the water. And just quickly, respiratory distress was lower for the babies having water births than the babies being born on land. What else? Everything else was lower. Neonatal infection, neonatal infections in the first six weeks were the same, whether you're born on water or on land neonatal admissions to hospital were lower if you gave birth in water. So the findings of this study, so what they said, and I'm just going to use their words because it's beautiful. So the researchers said that for every 10,000 women who have a water birth, six will develop a postpartum uterine infection. On the other hand, those 10,000 water births would have simultaneously been associated with 60 fewer hemorrhages of over 1,000 mils, 74 fewer diagnoses of postpartum hemorrhage, 44 fewer instances of maternal transfer to hospital in the postpartum period, 28 fewer hospitalizations in the first six weeks, eight fewer third or fourth degree tears, and what's most importantly is no increase in hospitalization for infection. So although they found a slight increase in uterine infection risk if you give birth in water, it doesn't increase the risk of you being needing to go to hospital to manage that. And for every 10,000 babies born underwater, we would expect 20 cases um, of umbilical cord avulsion, but 12 fewer cases of respiratory distress. 26 fewer neonatal transfers to hospitals and 20 fewer hospitalizations in the first six weeks. And importantly, no increase in neonatal deaths, in fact, a decrease in neonatal deaths. So yes, cord avulsion increases, but that is a minor outcome compared to things like death, respiratory distress and admission to neonatal intensive care units. Can we just give a lot of love to the researchers? Because that is a brilliant paper. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad we filmed this podcast and created this podcast this year so we had it to talk about. So here you are. Here is the evidence. Pregnant people, birth workers, take it. Make some policies out of it. Start improving access. We know women like it. We know that it's safe. Our issue here, though, is high-risk women. If If it's doing that for low-risk women, compared to land birth, then wouldn't we want it for high-risk women? Mm-hmm. That's brilliant research. Well done to those researchers. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for the people that birthed and allowed their births to be part of the research. Yes. And I think what we have here too is a beautiful baseline of what's possible for water birth because it's low-risk women with midwives in a community setting. So as far as I can gather, that is our baseline to move on from. So if you've started implementing water births in your hospital, we know that it's possible to have these amazing outcomes and those statistics. And if the stats in your hospital are different than for low-risk women, then it's not what's happening with the women and it's not what's happening with water birth. It's what's happening in that setting and with those care providers. You know, if we if you listen back to episode 15 with Dr. Sarah Buckley and we learn all about the hormones of labor and what they need in order to work properly, water birth fulfills a lot of those requirements. So I want to give a plug here. So that's epic research. I also want to give a plug for an Australian study that was just published. And um, this was presented at the conference that we were at recently, the National Midwifery Conference in um, Cairns in Australia. So the paper is published in Women and Birth and it'll be um, in the mailing list, but it's called Togs On or Togs Off. So very Australian. Um, And so it looked at people People who low risk, again, pregnancies, who birthed at a birth centre um, co-located at a northern Queensland tertiary hospital. And so the reason, I, when I listened to the presentation, the reason they did the research was because the doctors were saying that if you birth in water, you have higher rates of perineal trauma. And so 40% of the people, so 702, birthed in water. For those that birthed in water, they were statistically more likely to have an intact perineum compared with people that did not birth in water. So again, you know, the same as this much larger larger study that had 10 times the amount of women in it. Similarly, people people who birth in water, I can't say it. Similarly. No, that doesn't sound right. Similarly. Similarly. Has to be similarly. 
No, similarly. Similarly. Similarly? Yes. Oh, that does feel better. Similarly. Yeah. So for those, if if Mel keeps this in because she likes to edit my good bits out, <laughs> I am deaf. And so my pronunciation, I really struggle with it. So if you, you know, and people are like, oh, you can't be intelligent if you can't pronounce things. You can. You can be intelligent and not pronounce things. You can also be intelligent and not have good grammar. We need to break down the stereotypes. But anyway, similarly. Very good. People who birthed in water were statistically less likely to have severe perineal trauma, defined as third or fourth degree tears, compared with those who do not birth in water. Secondary outcomes. So when they do research, they look at primary outcomes. They're the main things they want to prove. And then they look at secondary outcomes. So people who, the secondary outcomes looked at the use of gas. So people who birthed in water required less gas compared to those who did not and were less likely to have a postpartum hemorrhage. So it's a smaller study. It's in Australia. But again, there's more research that we're adding to this. There is more stuff being done. Well, and that's the other thing. So, you know, we're talking all about safety outcomes because often that's what hospital policymakers and movers and shakers need to hear in order to be able to implement it in hospitals. But at home, women use it for, you know, pain relief. And I call it the home birth epidural. And I sort of say to women, just do everything else that you need to do in order to manage the sensation of labour. And if you feel like you've exhausted every single option, then you know that's the time to get in the pool. Yes, it is. It's the last option. That's what we always say. And that's the reason I've never birthed in water. I just want to ask, though, a really important question, Mel. Um, How many women uh, lost consciousness in that study and needed to be (laughs) evacuated with a room swing? Oh, look, I'd say they didn't mention it and probably it doesn't bloody happen. Yes. Like if there's 17,000 women and it hasn't happened, then, uh, you know, there is, I mean, oh, just. I think that's all we need to say about water birth for now. And then this is just stuff I want to talk to you about, whether you put it in or not, um, when then we can finish. But I've thought a lot about the pushing and I've thought a lot about the urge to push. And I believe it's the neonatal cortex taking over. I believe it's the mind's inability to surrender and allow the body to move through that. And so that when you want to go with your body, that's actually your prefrontal cortex that wants to go with your body. And it's not actually your body doing it yet. It's your prefrontal cortex wanting to manage the urge because it's so ripe and full on and so you want to do it because it feels good to take it away it's the same why we actively push our poos out rather than passively push them out that's what I believe is there and I've had so many messages since I wanted to share them all with you where women are like yes I wanted to push but I kept breathing and it's that it's that control almost to to control the prefrontal cortex to step away and so you're controlling the thoughts to allow the body to do its thing and so if you can control the thoughts the body will just keep doing its thing and passively push out your baby that's where I'm at with that this is the and I mean we're still in disagreement because I want to know what happens you know when the Eskimos give birth and they've never seen anybody else give birth what's their neonatal cortex doing Yeah, well, maybe it's probably the same thing because they're human and humans uh, have that prefrontal cortex, which makes them go, just do it, just get over and done with. And this is what so much of it. But isn't that physiological then? Well, it's not body. It's not listening to the body. It's listening to the mind. No, but the mind and the body are connected and they work together. And so. Yeah, but if you can tell the mind, it's okay, just let the body do its thing, breathe. If you can tell. The mind to breathe and then the body breathes and still pushes the baby out. Then that, yeah, it's physiological control. Still and I have to keep thinking about it. I just feel like we want to take over, right? I mean, neither of us have cared for a person birthing in an igloo, so we don't know. But I do think you're guided. I mean, midwives have always been the people that guide. And so they would say, keep breathing, keep breathing. Like the, I mean, what do you do during orgasm? Like, so if you whatever like. you want. You do whatever yeah, you want. I just want to know if this instruction to breathe and override whatever your brain or body is telling you to do, is that an intervention in in what would otherwise be a physiological process of pushing out your baby? 
And that's it for this episode. We will see you in the next episode of the So good being back. Love to you all. You. All right. See you then, guys. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>